Welcome back to the show. This week, we interview Greg Crabtree from uh, Simple Numbers 2.0. He's an author of that book and also a uh, uh, the same guys that we use as for our company as CFOs to, to give us a crystal ball view of what's coming next, what the economy is doing, what we can prepare for, how to prepare, what kind of core capital we need to have in place, and how to read the numbers in a way that we can get the very best results and not be surprised as things move through. So I highly, highly recommend if you're running a business to have somebody that's managing those numbers with you or at least guiding you along the way so that you can make incredible decisions for yourself and for your company and not be running scared and, and kind of blind at uh, this thing we call business. So uh, tune in here. You're going to hear Greg drop a lot of great nuggets about what he thinks is coming in the economy over the next year and two and uh, what's some things in your business that you really need to focus on in, in order to make sure you don't just survive but could possibly even thrive through these crazy times we're in right now. So enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Outer Spaces, a podcast dedicated to empowering designers and contractors in the outdoor living space. Through this show, I hope to create a powerful resource for you, someone who is trying to grow their company, but might not have all the tools and processes to do so. On Outer Spaces, we're passionate about breaking the chains of small mindsets and helping contractors just like you take control of their businesses and their lives. My name is Joshua Gillow, and through my 25 years of dirt under the nails experience, I look forward to sharing tips, strategies, and other contractor success stories here on the Outer Spaces podcast. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, welcome back to the Outer Spaces podcast. This is your host, Joshua Gillow. And today we have on the show again, he's been on many times. He's our uh, go-to guy for everything economy and what's going on in, you know, with the recession and, and in, our, in our industry from the number side of things. He has a hunter company model that he watches very closely to see what's happening. So what I'd, I love to do in my business is to make sure I have a sense of what's coming as much as we possibly can, like a crystal ball, if you will. And this man is that for us. Uh, he's been, uh, him and his team have been CFOs for our company for a very long time. And we, uh, we always enjoy meeting with them and getting going. He's the author of simple numbers 2.0. If you haven't read the book, go get it. Uh, his name is Greg Crabtree. Welcome back, Greg. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Greg. So, you know, you've been on a couple of times and each time we're always talking about the same basic thing because you're like the guy for that <laughs> is wh what's going on in the economy right now. And what, what can we prepare for? Get ready for? What are we seeing? How can we have this crystal ball into the future? I know nobody knows what's going to happen, yeah. but what what are you seeing out there right now for especially from contracting and, and all that side? Well, you know, the, the first thing I want everybody to understand is we're living in a time that there's never been this situation of connected events like this before. So there's not a pattern to go back to and say, you know, oh, we can learn this from 1942, or we can learn this from 1963, or we can learn this from 2007. No, no, this is a whole new set of circumstances, which is one of the reasons why I've been a, a substantial critic uh, of, of our, you know, monetary policymakers, because they're running 40-year-old playbooks for a brand new problem that has a whole different set of rules to it. And for the most part, our policymakers, in my opinion, have tended to just drive us into one ditch to overcorrect, to drive us in the other ditch. And, you know, maybe even partway down the hill to then overcorrect and drive us back into the other ditch and maybe partway down the hill. And and hopefully they just don't drive us off into the, into the ocean. You know, because, I mean, 
they're they're failing to understand things. And and part of this goes back to why we have the hunter company model to begin with is that I just found that, you know, I couldn't really wait to rely on the government to finally come up with the statistical information, you know, that my clients needed for guidance. The fact that our practice is is international as well as, you know, all, all of our U.S. clients are all over the U.S., so we don't have a particular geographic focus. We don't have a particular industry focus. We, we have clients in just about every industry out there. You know, and so the fact that we have this access to data and we have one way of seeing it, and this is, this is the essential thing that I think the simple numbers philosophy really rises above the industry, is the fact that we see business in one format consistently across all businesses and it's it works it, it's given us a way for the data to talk not me talk about the data the data talks to us because of this structure and essentially it's you know, quite simply a, a business engine and a chassis and you're trying to align the the, the engine to the chassis and when you have a, an engine that's out of control like we had in the previous decade before covid you know, the chassis was getting pulled into the ditch from just, you know, too much activity and everybody, you know, over responding. And then we go into the disruption in the last couple of years and, you know, and you had two different sets of fortunes. COVID sometimes made some businesses have great fortune and sometimes have bad fortunes. And, and so, mm-hmm. you know, so this constant adaptation and really at the end of the day, even a subset of alignment in that is, is kind of our theme that, that your listeners know very well is this idea of gross margin relative to labor and in our labor efficiency ratio that we talk about is, and I, I'm just continually amazed at the consistency of how many companies, you know, 90% of the businesses in, in the marketplace operate on one, one number. All right. So here, here's your, all right. I'm going to give your listeners a number. Really, mm-hmm. everybody remember this number, two. Everybody got that? Everybody remember the number yeah. two. Why is it two? Well, that means I need $2 of gross margin for every dollar of labor, regardless of whether it's direct or management. And 90% of the businesses, if you hit that standard, you're going to be you know, a, a nicely profitable business, not overtly profitable. I mean, you'll be, you'll be a good profitable business. The more you drop below that, if you get outside of a 1.9, you're starting to struggle. The, you just cannot produce enough profitability to cover your operating cost. And, you know, and like I said, we, regardless of the industry, and, and your industry is no different. I mean, that, that's really kind of that, that singular number. We have more finer tuned measures, you know, like we use with your company of, you know, you know, your direct labor efficiency, you know, your management labor efficiency. That's more relative to the play that you're running in your business of going, mm-hmm. you know, I, I there's three plays in labor. I can be heavy direct and I have to be then light management. I can kind of be balanced in both or I can be light direct and heavy management. Right. And, and so that's the reason why if you look at industry data, it really is 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 unusable to look at industry data across businesses because you don't know what labor play they're running. You've got people in your industry that run all three of those plays and their businesses are going to act different. Now their total labor efficiency ratio has to come out to the same number, but how they accomplish it is more of their choice of, of art of how to attack it. And so these are things that make 
your ability to look at the marketplace and, and see what's happening and people don't have, have not learned to interpret the data correctly from that. Plus the fact, you know, the government doesn't know anything about anybody's business that's listening to this podcast. I mean, how many of you, I mean, what does the government know about your business? We're already through the first quarter of 2023. What do they know that you did in the first quarter of 2023? Nothing, nothing. How do they come up with these stats? Well, they're not looking at your business, which we, we, we are, you know, at least the ones that we follow. Yeah. And so, so that was the reason why we kind of came up with it. Now, all that said, here's what we're seeing. So when we look at our hunter company model, we've definitely seen a, a planing out of, you know, we, we're now down to where I, I contend my data is showing that we've been in a recession since the third quarter of, of, of last year of 22. Um, we started seeing a rolling three decline in revenue starting in June of 22. And it's continued for, what is that, nine consecutive months. And, and, and so, you know, you, you might, I, I guess, technically a recession is two consecutive quarters of economic decline. You know, I, I would probably argue, you know, I, I might give you that Q2 was a, was a positive growth quarter. So that would mean we've been in a recession since the fourth quarter of 22 and obviously first quarter of 23. There, there's no doubt. We've seen a stabilization in the last two months of we've at least hit the bottom of that. Now, where it's going to go from here, okay, you got some headwinds. So let's kind of parse that out. So in your, your listeners, you know, case, they're connected to the building industry, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're sometimes new construction, you're sometimes renovation construction. And, and so in those cases, all of our renovation contractors, I, we do several roundtables with, with renovation uh, contractors across the country, amazingly resilient. Their backlogs are good. What, what we are seeing in those groups is the size of project is coming down. So people aren't doing the big renovations that they have to go get you know, mortgage money to go do, but they're willing to spend money on their HELOC or cash that they have in pocket. And they're not, they're recognizing that the real estate sales market is, is locked up for the foreseeable future. So they're going to make their current living space more appealing to them. So, so as long as you're not in a urban area, which most of your people are not, most of them are going to be in the suburbs and, and more, more rural you know, area, you're probably going to see some okay demand. I mean, it's not going to be off the chart, but it's going to be steady and you should be able to run a, a successful business, um, you know, and price it, you know, effectively, you know, make sure you get, you know, your costs are going up and, and those things, but it, you should be able to price it. But, uh, but there should be some okay demand. There gets to be a point though, that there's some, the, the demand might have some gaps. So there are a couple of things that we're likely to see. Uh, we're likely to see some really bad contagion in the commercial real estate space. We've already seen a couple of, of properties uh, miss mortgage payments and uh, default on loans. That's going to continue. The, there's a from a couple of the reports I've read. There's about a third of the commercial property that gets repriced to current interest rates this year. And when all of those properties get repriced to current interest rates, they cannot cash flow. The, yeah. the, the interest rate will be too high. 
And so therefore they have to raise the rent. Well, they can't raise the rent because they, they're at declining occupancy. You know, commercial property is just, there is more and more and more space. And, and unless you live in kind of a bubble area, uh, Huntsville, Alabama, where we live, we're in a bubble area. I mean, there's, you know, you got government contractors, you can't throw a rock without hitting a government contractor. And, and so we're, we're busy. Nashville, I mean, Nashville's still growing like crazy, crazy weed. Um, you know, in most of Florida, uh, our clients down in Florida, I mean, they, they all seem to be, you know, pretty busy. Texas is a little bit of a mixed bag. You know, you've got a little bit of weakness in Austin um, and definitely a, a more definite weakness in Houston. Uh, and, and so those, I think the Texas market might be a little more challenged uh, in terms of the commercial space, you know, than, than those others. Uh, but there again, it, it's, it, it's affecting the marketplace. Here's the other thing that's going to affect you. Uh, if you're out there, you need to buy, you know, production equipment, uh, backhoe, uh, a, um, you know, other, other equipment, a trailer, you know, and, and you expect to go finance it. Uh, Capital One, I think, announced last week that they're getting out of the floor planning business you know, for equipment financing. Um, and so a lot of the dealers will lose some of their ability to carry equipment if they were being financed by Capital One. And, and as a general rule, most of the lead in the market is saying that, that the, the banks are pulling back on equipment financing. And so once again, the folks that follow kind of our principles, I mean, as much as I would like for you to finance that equipment, if you can, and not chew up your cash, you, you might need to be a little more extra careful to retain some cash retain some of those profits in the business because if you do need to make an equipment purchase, it's not going to be as easy you know, to finance it potentially. Um, now, just because Capital One gets out, it opens up the door for some of the others, but you know, but it, it's going to hurt your supplier's ability to keep stuff in stock because they can't keep mm-hmm. as much in stock if they can't floor plan it. And and you know, and like I said, it may not financing may not be available to you as a purchaser, regardless of what your credit is. You know, so um, so there is certainly a constriction of credit out there. Um, and, and so as you see these things start to, to impact, that's why I say I still think you're going to see OK demand because we still have a lot of people who make a lot of money and have money. And yeah. I think the people who will you know, pretty much, you know, want to improve their their home spaces because they're not going to buy a new house anytime soon. They're willing to spend some money, but you're going to see a, a different mix of customers more than likely. No, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, it's we got to keep switching and adjusting when it comes to business. You know, pre-COVID, right. you're in one model to work with. COVID came along and for us, it was a huge boon. You know, so many businesses were started to handle demand. And now, um, you know, now, Greg, I'm thinking like, well, OK, well, I think we might start showing some of that over saturated market with, you know, lots of new businesses trying to, to handle the demand of COVID. Now the demand of COVID is gone, yeah. you know what I mean? Or slowed down. Now we've got all these businesses that are all trying to fight for the same amount of food, if you will. So now it's going to be the you know strongest will survive. And how are you seeing that being affected out there in the market? Well, I mean, you're going to, you know, so I, I called from 2009 to 2019 was the participation trophy economy. You could be a bad business and and survive and and actually do yeah. okay, you know, because there was so much demand, excess demand that you know you, you were if you just get something on the calendar, somebody do business with you. Not so much right now, and so um, and and for those people, 
it, this is kind of one of those times where you can't just go get business and be the cheapest because you will be out of business in a very quick fashion. You got to sure. be profitable. I mean, there's no way to finance it. I mean, you got to do it. And you're going to see some defaults. You're going to see, I mean, this is this is when it always, the, the contracting industry takes a hit. You will see people that will take deposits and things to start a job and ghost them. Yeah. And you're, you're going to see the ghosting, you know, start to increase. And mm. then, but now the good news is, is those people eventually, obviously they, they exit the marketplace and, and you're left with the good competitors. Uh, and, and, and so I think, and, and just the, the key is stick to your guns, say no to the work that, you know, if you get into a, you know, a, a, a race to the bottom in pricing, you are going to go out of business. You can't do that. And but so far, I, I, we've not actually seen that as, as an issue. All of our construction contractors have been able to maintain margin and win the work because I think the marketplace kind of expects that they want to deal with somebody who's got a track record, you've got a history, and yeah. you do what you say you're going to do when you do it. And and yeah. and if you do those things, those people have been pretty stable. So I. I haven't seen a need for anybody to really get into a price war yet. That's great. And you know, that's, that's just good rule of thumb in general for business, you know, just to be an in, in life mm-hmm. is to be a man or woman of your word, yeah. right? You tell mm-hmm. a client, you tell somebody something and you do it. It's expectations. That's all we're trying to deliver to the client is expectations. So if we set expectation in the beginning with a designer, with our entire proposal, and then we the deliver or over deliver on that, right. um, everyone's going to be for the most part happy, right? It's when you under deliver or when you price it really low and then you set expectations that aren't real mm-hmm. and then a client's pissed off or uh, you know unimpressed at the end. And now you've got all kinds of extra money in there just trying to fix it for them. Yep. You know, that's, that's a definitely a downward spiral. But to your point here earlier, you know, if you don't know your numbers, if you don't know profitability, you don't know where that line is, yep. you're going to get kicked by the horse. <laughs> it's going to be very simple because you're going to want to win the project and yep. in winning the project, you're going to lose your business. Well, and and I'll, I'll just share with you, I had a discussion with my renovation contractors, you know, a couple of weeks ago and he's got plenty of demand. And right now, if you come to him and say, hey, I got a project, he's going to say, well, it's November before I can start. Yeah. And, and, and so we had this discussion, should he spin up another, you know, project manager? Uh, and because in his case, it would take an estimator and a project manager, you know, to actually, yeah. you know, do that. And I said, you know, you could, but I, I I'd rather you be, you're, you're nicely profitable where you're at. And, yeah. and so this goes back into, you know, kind of one of our core simple numbers philosophies is you got to get profitable with what you got before you think about growing and not all growth is good. And, and, and I think we're, we're heading into an economy where, you know, th- there's, there's a lot of constraints out there. And right now your guys should have a pretty good year of what's in front of them. I can't give you that same prediction for next year. But yeah. for this year, you should be able to put some some hay in the barn. And I would say if there was ever a year to kind of be profitable and stick that money away, you know, you know, for, for future disruption, this would be the year to do it because there's still cash, there's still demand. And with yeah. like I said, with the quirk of the real estate market like it is, you know, people aren't going to be buying a new house anytime soon unless you see mortgage rates drop into the low fives to high fours. 
that that's what will release the you know the, the purchasing. But right now, see all those people that normally would trade up to the next house, they actually are making they're making more money. They've, they've gotten pay increases, but their mortgage isn't expanding, and so they actually have more spendable dollars. Now, as long as it doesn't get chewed up by other things that have gone up, you know, inflation wise, which you know has been a lot. Um, you know, and, but, but I think, you know, people will definitely moderate their spending and, and based on, you know, kind of the data, you know, that we're seeing from our company model, you know, there's people are, are starting to make different choices with their disposable income. And as we saw during COVID, when people were locked down at home, they spent money on the place they live. And that is, that's still pretty high on the totem pole of, of where people, you know, get a lot of utilization of value at. It makes sense. You know, if you're not going to be trading up, you know, I've been in, we've been in our home now 15, 16 years now, and mm-hmm. we have no interest in moving, but I know some people just don't, they don't do it that way, right? Their jobs change or they just kind of, as they move through life, they're going to keep upgrading their homes. And when they do, they want to make it their own. So that was beautiful during the COVID time, but now they're kind of stuck in their spot because of values and because of interest rates. So, you know, the, the question really is what plays out in the next you know, 12 to 24 months with them being there, are they going to invest in them or just have it as a perch for a little while until they see what happens and then pop out of it. But yeah. uh, I still think there'll be demand throughout. Now coming into 2024 is an election year. Mm-hmm. What have you found, you know, in, in election years, how does that affect, you know, if our planning for business with, you know, the craziness that is election time? Well, I mean, at, at some point, you know, the current administration starts to, to have some visits with the, the economic policymakers and say, listen, dude, I hear what you're saying, but we kind of need some lower interest rates. Uh, and, and now the, the question, the, the problem is, is you know, does that really you know, spike inflation? Here's the part that they haven't totally understood. The, the vast majority of inflation is being caused by wage increases. I mean, it, it is, it, it, it's not, um, you know, you can, you can bring down inflation with as as people lower prices on existing goods and inventory and dump them on the market to get their cash back but then the next cycle is they have to charge more and and it goes back up and and so there's a chart that we use in our presentation that shows the inflation of goods from 2000 to 2022 is quite revealing everything that has gotten more expensive it has labor, significant amounts of labor associated with it. Everything that is more affordable in the last 22 years is something that has been imported that wasn't labor that was done in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and so the problem with these blended inflation numbers is you get, it depends on, just look at the basket of goods that they used. And it's like, that's not what we actually spend money on. And, and so, you know, the, the, the thing is, is we're still in a conundrum of we're, we're at a stuck point in our labor force that we're not, we don't have an increasing labor force. And so, therefore, you cannot create true economic growth if you don't have an expanding labor force. And I don't see them coming together and singing kumbaya about immigration anytime soon. So, I got news for you. We're, we're stuck to slightly declining. Oh, by the way. I would say labor productivity is is at a historic low. Of hmm. yeah, I might have bodies. I mean, the the biggest issue about all the layoffs that that were publicized, these are people that were sitting around doing nothing anyway. 
And so they, they weren't accomplishing anything. So the, the companies that laid them off had, uh, they saved a lot of money and they were thinking that they kind of needed. I mean, these are, these are things big companies do. They're stupid. I mean, they, they just have these things that people do. And then all of a sudden they wake up and realize, Oh, I got to do something about it. And I just had this mm-hmm. discussion with a client call right before this. And, you know, you, you think these big companies are smart. No, they're not. I mean, they're a day late and a dollar short, you know, for the most part. And, 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 and so the, the reality is, is they are affected by the same thing I just said a few minutes ago. You have to get profitable with what you got. And at least they're starting to realize that for them to grow is not favorable at the moment in, in most of their cases. And if they're of the tech startup companies, I mean, they're just trying to become viable. Most of them were losing money anyway. Uh, yeah. But, but the, the core companies, I mean, they're looking at this going, Hey, you know, they may be at the peak. And, and, and one of the statements that I start off with our current presentation about the economy is it is very likely that global output in real output measurement likely peaked in about 2019. Mm. You know, we're, we're not producing more globally because population has stalled. I mean, we, we've got, you know, I've mentioned it before, we've got these severe population inversions globally around the world, especially China has got the worst, or one of the worst, um, you know, but, but we're, we're going to see a world that is increasingly going to struggle to produce more. And uh, ultimately, that flips, its, flips us on its head of where we don't have consumers either. You know, we got all these people at the top. Well, as my generation, the baby boomers start to die off, you know, we're still consuming at probably a higher rate than previous retired generations have done. But that is going to start to that demand that we're putting on the marketplace will start to decline over the next couple of years. So you've got about a, a three to five year run that you really want to be as profitable as you can be and, you know, get your reserves and, and, and get those in, in the barn. And we'll, we'll see what the world looks like in five years. But we're, we're going to see some major, major, major population shifts, some supply chain shifts, um, you know, that you're already starting to see it with kind of the deglobalization of the world and more mm-hmm. regionalization is really where trade's kind of getting to. And there's there's pros and cons to that. I mean, there's winners and there's losers. And you just kind of yeah. got to figure your world of the people listening to this, bringing it back to them. You know, as long as where we live and those things remain relatively stable. I think you're going to see probably less turnover of properties. People will become more focused in long-term ownership and staying where they're at and continuing to improve where they're at. So I think mm-hmm. for your listeners, the, these are things that probably point more to a positive for them. And so only the people that are affected by new construction, that that's going to be very spotty, I think. Got it. Now, just will switch gears here with you, Greg, and I don't know how much you get into this, but I want to just bounce it off you, this AI and all this stuff mm-hmm. coming to replace a lot of the workforce, you know, like ChatGBT and mm-hmm. Jasper and all these guys, like all this stuff coming where it's going to replace a lot of people. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, there's there's good and bad to it. I mean, I, I you know, I still go back to those Terminator movies. And the, the one question <laughs> I want to ask GPT for is, uh, have, have, has the singularity already occurred? You know, so yeah, <laughs> that would that would be the that would be somebody can pose that question and see what it says. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's there's good and bad to it. There's gonna, there's obviously people already pushing back against it. 
let's face it. I mean, we are in, we need automation of jobs. Now the question becomes, and what none of us really kind of know how it plays out is, you know, the, the, the list that I've seen of what it replaces, you know, that doesn't help us a lot. You know, the, these are, these are jobs that, you know, I mean, some of the folks that have those jobs may, may not like it, but those people are generally, you know, transferable skills to other things that don't as easily get done by it. Um, but last time I checked, uh, AI is not going to get out and, uh, and do yard work or, you know, lay, uh, uh, you know, uh, lay uh, patio tiles and uh, it's not going to put a roof on a house. It's not going to mow it. Well, mowing yards, actually some of our clients already use are playing with some of the automated, you know, mowing, you know, stuff. But e- even as they look at that, they say, mm, doesn't save them a ton of labor. You know, you still got to have a person that goes out and there's not an economic model yet to figure out, you know, kind of how to use it. Uh, but, you know, the reality is if you, going back to what I said earlier about the population inversion, I mean, we, you know, the U.S. is at 1.6 replacement birth rate and falling, not rising. We're falling still. And, you know, and I, I did my part. I had four kids, but my kids are failing. I mean, I, I've only got four granddaughters and you know, I might get one <laughs> or two more, but I keep telling my kids, you're underperforming. You know, so <laughs> let's go. And, let's go. And, 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 and unfortunately, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of pushback. I mean, you talk to, you know, the people in the, you know, the birthing years of, of life and many of them are hesitant to, you know, to have any more kids or, or have mm-hmm. kids at all. And, you know, that, that sounds lovely until you look at the, the, the macro impact of that. And, and you know, we're going to see China implode right before our eyes here in the next three to five years based on, you know, some of the things that I've read. And that's going to shock everybody. You're going to see a society that, you know, a couple of years ago, everybody was going, ooh, you know, look out for China. Yeah, look out for China because they're, I mean, they are, they're going to, they're going to go through societal suicide, you know, by, you know, a 1.1 replacement birth rate for the country, maybe. And it's a 0.7 in their urban areas. I mean, they, mm. their, their cities will start to become ghost towns, you know, fairly rapidly. And, you know, that. Take us a little deeper into that, uh, Greg, so that listeners can get a better sense of that birth rate and why it's so important, especially for big economies like China. Well, I mean, you go back to, I mean, go back to what Henry Ford did when he created the assembly line. You know, he brought people in off the farm and gave them a good, steady, you know, I mean, it, let, let's start with this. I mean, when we were in agrarian society, because I, I grew up on a farm, you know how often you get paid when you work for a farm? Once Not a really. year. All right. Yeah, so exactly. so let, let, let's just establish that standard right now. How many people listening to this could survive if they only get paid once a year? For what they do. I mean, that is a tough model. Well, yeah. so you come in off the farm and you get paid every every two weeks, probably got paid weekly back then, you know, and and as Henry Ford said, not only did he create more availability of product that there was pent up demand for, he created consumers. Now, so let me ask you this about AI. Is AI a consumer? I mean, I would, I, I, I would say I, no. I, I, no, no, it's not a consumer. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't pay taxes. It doesn't, yep. you know, it helps you produce, 
but it also takes away a consumer's role that you know you need to trade with and 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 so these are the things that you know the when i talk to the you know the the the, you know i i I got to do my eo at horton program and we were talking with the our lead professor david wessels who i really have super high respect for and you know these were some of the interesting discussions that kind of came up during that week of classes that you know it's like we you know he'd be the first one to tell you we don't know how this plays out and everybody just has a guess I think to a certain degree, we need automation to fill the gap of lack of workers because there's just certain things that you can't offshore to you know, remotely somewhere. I've got to have a physical person to go do it. Um, but there, all the low hanging fruit of automated jobs have already been done. Um, you know, when you had the bubonic plague, that was the last time we had global decline in population. Uh, to a pre- uh, appreciable degree, and that ushered in the industrial revolution. And so, you know, but those were all the low-hanging fruit jobs of, you know, why automate when I can just throw bodies at it? Well, we don't mm-hmm. have those bodies to throw at it anymore, and but we don't have those bodies to also be consumers anymore. And so, so it's going to be an interesting, you know, what you're going to see is a world of product of going what are the necessaries versus the discretionaries? And so when I talk to my clients and I, I put them in those two groups, so I have clients who are the necessaries and clients who are the discretionaries. And, and if you're in the discretionary space, how do you get to the top of that food chain to where you're one of the highest choices of spendable dollars versus you're, you're one of the easiest ones to spit out you know, and, mm. and, and do without? Uh, but even in the necessaries, people people turn down their thermostat, you know, in the winter and turn it up in the summer. And so you can affect your utility bill. You can affect, you know, your telephone bill or, you know, use a different plan or change to a different carrier. Um, you know, take take all of those, you know, the utility things. There are still some choices in it, you know, yeah. but 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 it, it's a it, it's a very dynamic equation that. As I said before, we do, we've we never experienced it. And so everybody's making a guess as you try to see how it's going to play out. That makes perfect sense. Myself so, included. As, yeah, that's, I think that's pretty much everybody. And you've been around doing this a very long time, Greg. Mm-hmm. So, you know, next 90 days, next, you know, let's just say one, two quarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, uh, core cash, you know, core capital and, and all of that, as far as, as we move through this, uh, possibly certain, maybe not certain time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I you know, if you're not, you know, go back to the simple numbers, core philosophy. I mean, so number one, you got to get profitable what you got. And, and so, yeah. um, so for most of the people listening to this, what you want to be, because your guys deal with, with a lot of cost of goods sold, I'm become more of a fan of looking at profit relative to gross margin. So take mm-hmm. your revenue minus your cogs, but before labor, look at that as your true economic top line. And I want you to be no less than 15. 20 is a good target, 20% uh, target. 25 is really where I think you want to be, especially in your, your, your busy season you know, for that. I think that is a cleaner way of looking at it as I've learned. Now, I will tell you, if you get to a two total labor efficiency ratio, you're going to be between 20 and 25% profit to gross margin. Just It's just hardwired. And so that's why, that's one of the easier methodologies of saying, listen, hey, here's my labor. 
you know, so we're, uh, you know, when uh, we're already into April, so let's use May as an example. So by the time people listen to this, May 1st, how much labor are you going to spend in the month of May? Take that number times two. That's your gross margin target that you got to go get your teams to go produce, bill to for the month of May. And if you do that, you'll be okay. And you do, and the key is you got to start it at the first of the month. So I, I can come within a reasonable approximation of my labor on the first day of the month of what I'm going to spend pro- prospectively across that month. And then I got four weeks to do something about it. And you measure, you know, each week, am I getting gross margin across the door? We, we had a call with one of our Canadian clients yesterday. And I mean, we've been working with these guys for probably, you know, five years. And, and I'm still reinforcing this idea that he had some projects with some high pass-through cost. And, and just getting their eyes off of revenue. And it's like, listen, I don't really care what your gross margin percentage is. It's just an indicator of what kind of your mix of work is. What I care about is gross margin dollars. And tell me how many, you know, and, and I, I gave him the same spiel. I said, listen, you got to get to $2 of gross margin dollars for every dollar of labor management and direct, you know, for your business. And he's in a totally different industry than, than your listeners, but it doesn't matter. It's the same. It's the same principle. Yeah. As I like to say, I wish it was more complex. I could charge more for it, but I mean, it's not. Yeah. And, and thing, you know, you've, you mentioned a good point here about, you know, uh, your, your gross revenue minus cost of goods sold, because especially in, in like where we're heavily design managed. So, you know, the the numbers look crazy. Like you just see big, big numbers, but then once you factor out cost of goods sold, the the direct, you know, labor of subcontracting, all that stuff, and you get a number, it's like, okay, that's humbling. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of cost in that. And, and, and the thing is you can have an item that costs a hundred thousand dollars, and an item of COGS and an item that costs $5,000 and the $5,000 item requires more labor to work with than the $100,000 item that's a plug and play. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and the way yeah. I kind of describe it, you know, and I try to find different ways to say this so the light bulb goes off. Your gross margin dollars is what the market respects of your value add to the stuff that you are deploying. That, that's that's really the true true value indication of what you bring to the table as a business, not the revenue number. You're just yeah. you're just the 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 resource manager of getting the stuff. It's what you do with the stuff, and the and that gross margin is is that pure value add thing that the market respects. And if your gross margin is not enough, it means the market doesn't respect what you do. So what are you going to do differently for the market to respect what you do to get that gross margin higher for the amount of labor that you're doing? Mm, good question. It's a good question. And I think the secret is getting your thumb on the pulse of your client to see what they truly want and need and desire and not just get stuck on what you've been doing because it's worked, but really get intimate with your clients well, in a way that you know what's driving it, them. And I'll, I'll, I'll share with you an interesting study. So, so in our Horton class that, that, that I had last month, you know, the professor was telling this story that, you know, when COVID hit, you know, all, they, they surveyed all of their, their companies that send their, their uh, teams there for executive education. And they said, oh, we, we need everything to be online. You know, online is the way it's going to go. I mean, we're not ever going to go back into the classroom. So they worked their tail off during COVID to get everything online. As soon as lockdowns were over, what do you think the people did? They wanted to be back in the classroom. Yep. Yeah. And, and so 
you're 100% correct that you've got to get close to your customer. Just don't listen to what they say. Pay attention to what they do. Mm, I love that. What, what they say, I mean, they, they will tell you stuff that, I mean, yeah. and this is just, I mean, and I think most marketers will tell you, you know, doing customer survey, customer sentiment surveys is, yeah, take it with a grain of salt. I'm going to watch people vote with their feet. And, and yeah. watch what they do. Watch their emotional reaction to things. And and that's, so you're absolutely right. You got to get close to them, but in a different way that's more nonverbal than I'm going to watch them and 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 work off of them and, 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 and learn from that. And most of the time, what you'll be able to do, and it's the reason why you do customer profiling is, you know, create kind of that persona and understand yeah kind of this person fits this persona. And so they are generally going to act in this profile way, regardless of what they say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's definitely good, good insight for sure. Greg, any other uh, thoughts you have before we wrap up here that you want to bestow on our listeners? Well, I mean, I, I think this is a great summer to get the hay in the barn. And so, like I said, our, our number one play right now, we're telling everybody is that, listen, you got to get profitable what you got. It's less about growth um, I mean, if you want to take on the growth, I mean, yeah, there's a way to do it. And, and, but understand that, you know, I don't see long-term demand like we saw from 09 to 2019, because we have a damaged engine. We don't have the people, you know, when my generation started reti- retiring from about 2017 till 22, you know, that, you know, that was that they took a lot of the steam out of the economy in terms of producers, but they added demand, which has created a lot of the inflation. And okay. as as our generation moderates their spending in retirement and it start and it, it always does, then you're going to take some of that steam off the demand. But we also have a declining group of of customers coming up. One of the big holes, this is a, a, it's really stumping a lot of people. We're missing in the workforce a lot of 20 to 35 year old males that hmm. have just disappeared. And a lot of them are just doing gig work and staying out of the, the, the for hire economy of, of being an employee somewhere. Uh, a, a significant shortage of those 20 to 35 year old males in terms of professional positions and those things. And, uh, and, and that's troubling. And, and, and so, but, but, you know, we, we've got to deal with it. I mean, it's going it, it, to, you've got to just respond to the conditions at hand, um, you know, but, but it, it's really a time to just, you know, be more focused on, um, you know, if you do grow, what we like is more try to grow as incrementally as possible. You know, if I can do it by adding one more person adding, you know, and fill that person up and then add the next person, add the next person. But to make bold jumps in growth potential, just understand the risks that you're taking because you're, 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 you're making that, that bold either. Yes, I have the capital. I've, I'm, I've done my research and I really feel confident that, you know, I've got that demand that's there. Um, you know, and you got a way to finance that growth. And, and, and so, um, you know, now we try to teach people to grow with their own profits so that the bank's not an issue. But mm-hmm. I've got some clients who can't do that or they've chosen not to do that. And now as interest rates have shot up, they're in a little bit of world of hurt that, um, 
their that uh, that that issue is coming home to roost. So, but yeah. I, I'd say get profit what you got and yeah. hit that two month core capital target number. Uh, and I would probably even go further, go one step further into your personal finances and just make sure that you know you're you've got your six to twelve months of personal living expenses you know set aside in a, a risk free you know uh, savings. I'm still a huge fan. I know people kind of criticize me for this, but I'm I'm telling you, I'm batting a thousand on it. If everybody I've convinced to do it is even on the personal side, hey, have a paid for personal residence. You have so much staying power as a as a as a business owner to have a paid for personal residence. I'm yeah. you know I'm telling you, it's it's uh, it, it I'd I'd make that your number one personal financial goal. So to pay off your mortgage and get down to just having that asset in your pocket. Absolutely. And I, I, yeah. the interest rate is irrelevant. I don't care what your interest rate is. You could have a 1% interest rate. I'd still tell you to owe, you know, owe no man anything personally is, is where you are, you're as bulletproof as you can get, you know, from that mm-hmm. standpoint. And I'm telling you, uh, we, we got some, we got some fire that we're going to be taking on in the economy here over the next few years. And if you want to be one of the winners, you got to be prepared for it. Yeah. I love that. I love that, Greg. And I love our conversation every time you come on. So I appreciate you coming yep. on and, and uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And telling us what's going on out there, what you're seeing. Hope the listeners have gotten a lot from this as much as I have, because each and every time I listen to you, Greg, I'm always taking notes and grabbing information that you're sending out because it impacts everything. It impacts everything. And we don't have a crystal ball of the future, but I've found that Greg is probably as close as I've come to the one that knows what he's doing with this. And so I appreciate you being back on the show, Greg. And any listeners out there that want to reach out to you, they want to, you know, first of all, you can go buy on Amazon. You can go buy Simple Numbers 2.0, amazing book. That's how I found Greg. And uh, Greg, how else can they engage you? What other services do you have in case they're curious? Yeah, uh, so uh, the easiest way is our, our website that come that's just for the consulting practice, uh, simplenumbers.me, uh, and it'll direct you. Uh, we're part of Car Riggs and Ingram, uh, a top 20 uh, U.S. accounting firm. Uh, but that that is the site that's specific to just simple numbers. You certainly feel free to reach out to me via email, greg.crabtree at com. Uh, one of the things on going to the website, you can also sign up for our quarterly webinars, uh, or, or we have a series of webinars, but we're going to start one in May that we're going to do a quarterly economic update where we'll show slides from our hunter company model and go in depth uh, and, and discuss that. So I've, I've finally decided I've, I've watched the data long enough. I feel comfortable talking about it you know, publicly. Uh, we, we've been sharing it privately with our clients and giving them guidance, but much like this, we feel like the the broader community needs to hear some of this information because I think we get to see it three to four months sooner than it shows up in the official statistics. Uh, and it, it's where, hey, you got to get early information as soon as you can you know, to make business decisions. You, you can't be you know three to four months behind the curve. No, I totally agree. And I, ever since I brought you guys on and work with Jack each month and go through the numbers and see what we got to do, should we hire, should we not? What should we do? What should our margins be? How are we doing? What's our you know LER? What's our labor efficiency rate? Like all these kinds of things that has absolutely changed the way we do business. Mm-hmm. And now we're open book. So everybody in the company is part of those conversations. So cool. each one can see how 
you know, their see what their impact is on this, you know, whether they're selling or whether they're, you know, project management or running the front lines, like they know what they're doing and how it affects the bottom line at the end of the day. And the crazy part is, Greg, and what I found is that, you know, the, the more you open up the books to people, the more they start acting like owners. Yeah. yeah. You know, they and, start thinking like owners. Yeah. And, you, and, you know, and that's really kind of where our simple numbers approach is a little bit easier to teach people because we only focus yeah. on a handful of numbers. I mean, I, we're not trying yeah. to turn you into a CFO and yeah. most CFOs don't know how to make money anyway. And, and so it, it, <laughs> it, it really is that, you know, hey, it, it's not as complex as everybody thinks and there's no magic bullet. It is a dollar of labor input. What is that gross margin output? And everybody remember the number. The number's two. 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 We're going for two. <laughs> I love it. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, we'll listen. We'll see you next week. All right. Sounds good. I right, appreciate it. Thanks.